The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Amen, amen. Yes, that is the God we serve. That's what he does. Welcome to our revived service. Uh, If you're here, if you're joining us online, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 3 tonight. And the title of the message is The Restoration of Worship. The Restoration of Worship. Any of you read ahead in chapter 3? A few more of you didn't. A lot of you haven't done that yet. So I encourage you every week, you know, before you get here to read the next chapter so you're a little bit prepared, so you kind of have some idea of what's going to come at you. But Ezra chapter 3, a phenomenal chapter, a chapter full of action, a lot of great application for us tonight. I want to jump right in. Pick up with me in verse 1. We read this. It says, when the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths. As it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. Verse 6, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Verse 8, now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning. They made a beginning. Together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel." And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. So the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Father, we just thank you. We pray that you would speak to us tonight. God, stir our hearts. You're the God of restoration. You take the ruins of our lives and you make something of it. 
God, maybe some here tonight are hopeless. I pray tonight they find you, they find hope. You want to do something. You want to show up. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I've got a good friend of mine who has a, a highly trained dog. It's a, it's a cattle dog. He's a brilliant dog. He's also a stubborn dog. Uh, but there's something about this dog. He's trained as a service dog. And I love it when you can watch a dog who's been bred for a specific purpose, who's been trained to do a certain thing. When it does that thing, man, that dog's alive. I mean, like that dog knows this is its purpose. It's doing its purpose. And that dog is happy as that dog can possibly be. You've ever seen a Labrador retriever? Maybe some of you are hunters. You've been out, and when the lab jumps in the water after you know the, the, his master has pulled the trigger, and the duck is down, and it swims, and it goes because it's bred to retrieve, and it's doing its thing. Or maybe a Saint Bernard. You've seen the cartoons, or maybe you've been there in the, in the Alps, and they're looking for the for the skier who's you know drowned under a big wave of an avalanche, and it rescues, or or a Chihuahua. In fact, I don't know what a chihuahua does, actually. I'm not really sure what it was bred to do. Yap and annoy, I don't know. And I know I'm getting an email from the chihuahua owner out there. I can't believe you hate chihuahuas. God loves chihuahuas. I don't know. Anyway, but the thing about it is, is when you see that animal, there's something, I don't know about in your life, but it's like, wow. Oh, oh, what it would be like just to know your purpose and to fully live your purpose. To go, this is the thing I was meant to do, and I'm doing this thing. And whether it's a sheepdog, and it's running around and barking and nipping at the heels and, and hurting it, it can get kicked in the head. It doesn't care. It's happy. It's going back in for more. Why? Because this is what it was meant to do. There's something inspiring. It's like, I want to live like that. I want to, to be like that. I, I think there is something in that. And I want to say to us tonight, yes, the reason that might resonate in some of your hearts is because you and I were meant and made for a purpose. And some of you know what that purpose. Some of you are like, yeah, man, I can see the look on your face. And you're like, Whew. you're like those dogs that are trained. You've, you've been discipled and you're doing the thing. What is that purpose? Your, your, your purpose is to pursue and to experience the presence of God. It's to worship God. It's to, to do everything in your life, no matter what it is. And it could look a thousand different ways. But at the heart of it all is you were meant for God. You were meant for his presence. And I want to say to you tonight, you will never be more fully alive than when you are pursuing your presence, or excuse me, your purpose. That's after God's presence. And the only thing better than that is when you actually experience the rest and the satisfaction through worship of just sitting and dwelling and experience the goodness of his presence. Ezra chapter three, the story of Ezra is the story of a people who have been ruined and a city that lies in ruin and rubble. We, we've looked at the last couple of weeks of the 40,000 plus, 43,000 or so, the remnant who have responded to the voice of God, whose spirits, you recall, were stirred by the spirit of God, and they said yes, though it cost them much. They had a bigger dream, a dream that, no, we will live in the land that God promised. We will worship in the place where God himself dwelt. We will go and we will rebuild and we will restore, and they said yes. Ezra chapter 3 is really the first action chapter in the book of Ezra. Because in chapter 3, they, they're now home, and they see Jerusalem. They stand on the streets that David once stood upon. They're, they're there looking upon the remains of the great and glorious temple that Solomon himself had built. And I can't help but imagine what must have been going on in their minds and in their hearts. For some, it was great joy. Like, oh my goodness, we're here. And for many others, as they turned the corner and they made their way up to Mount Moriah and there the Temple Mount, they looked at the area and what did they see? They saw a pile of rocks. 
Not one stone of the temple was left upon another. There was just rubble and ruin everywhere. And I wonder what their expectations were. I wonder what went through their mind. How are we going to do this? Where do we begin? What's the first step we're supposed to take? How do we move forward? How is God going to do the work of restoration? Where do we start? Do we start with the walls? We need security. Do we, do we hang the gates? Do we, do we form an alliance with the people around us? Do we get our army ready because we need to protect? No, what they do, the very first thing they decide to do is the very first thing we must decide to do if we are ever to experience restoration. Because I don't know where you're at tonight. I don't know what's going on in your life. Maybe your life, like their life. You see, the the rubble wasn't just a physical thing. Oh, it was, but it was also a picture of the rubble of their relationship with God. Because of the choices that they had made, idolatry and sin and rejection of God, they were experiencing this pain. And I wonder tonight, maybe that's where you're at. You're here tonight and, and... and you're hopeless. You're thinking, I don't know why I came. You're listening tonight. You're like, I'm not even sure why. There's something within you. I want to say tonight, there's hope. And maybe your life lies in ruins. You're thinking, what do I do? What's the first step I need to take? How do I get going? What does God want from me? Can he, in fact, restore the ruins? Because I've messed up big time. And for some of you, you've made some choices. And you're thinking, I don't know that I can get out of this. For some of you, it might be choices that somebody else made. And you had really nothing to do with it, it seems like. And you're the sad recipient of somebody else's choices. And your heart's broken. Your life's thrashed. And you're wondering, what do I do? How do I move forward? How do I get back? Well, they get back. And they show us. They get back to that purpose. The thing that they lost and which led them to rubble, they get back to that pursuit of God's presence. How do they do that? We see that by building the altar and by building the temple. The very first thing they do is this is what we have to do first. This is our action step. They get back to worship. And they show us tonight, I don't know where you're at, but it's coming back to that place of consecration to the Lord, that place of worship. This is where it starts. Well, they start in the first few verses, they're rebuilding the altar. And I love it. It says they they came, it says, as one man, one heart, one accord. For 70 years, the people had been scattered. They had not been unified. They had not had the same mind, but something stirred. All of a sudden, this remnant group had a same common vision. A scattered people had come to a place that they could call their own. They gathered as the people of God. This was a Psalm 133 moment. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. What's the only thing that could unify these people, any people? It's God. There is nothing in life that can really unify two people, let alone a multitude of people other than God and the pursuit of God. I don't care who you are. That's the only thing. He's the only one that can ultimately bring us to a place of one mind, one heart, one accord. And we read there, I just read to you in a moment, the first thing they build, the first thing they decide to do is that we must build, not the temple first. Interesting, they build the altar. And the, the moment that they build the altar, they build it on the exact place that the previous altar stood. So they had to find out, where's that? They moved the rubble. Here's the spot. They, they looked at the records. This is the spot. This is where the altar God has decreed must be. And immediately they start to sacrifice. Why? Because that was the way they could worship. In that time, if they wanted to worship God, if they wanted to connect with God, that's the way God prescribed for them to do so. That's what they knew to do. That's what God said for them to do. I find it interesting if you look there in the, in the text, it says in verse 3, there's, there was a motivation not only to, to build because of the dream God put in their heart, but there was another motivation, fear. It says fear was upon them. Why fear? Because the people in the land were not happy that they were back. 
The people were threatened. What do you mean? You're back? I mean, this was their land. They'd been living there for decades, some of the people. Now the Israelites were back, and there's fear. And we'll see later on in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, there was threats. There was constant um, worry about warfare. There's fear in their hearts that they could be attacked. They were vulnerable. Listen, Satan will do everything he can to discourage you, to distract you. He'll cause fear to come into your life to get you away from the one thing you were meant to do, and that's worship, and that's to pursue the presence of God. So fear was upon them, but what I love, that fear did not paralyze them. That fear did not cause them to do the wrong thing. In fact, they took that fear and they channeled it into faith, and they said, no, because of the people, we must build this altar. If you think about it, what would have been the rational? Well, we've got fear. They're, they're threatening. We better build the walls, right? I mean, think about yourself. You're trying to protect your family. I need protection. I, I should make sure we've got some soldiers, some armies, some walls. I mean, that seems like the natural thing to do. But they said, no, because of this threat, because we're experiencing this fear, the first thing we need, we need God. <laughs> We need God in our lives. We need God in our situation. We've got to build this altar. And God promised in the book of Exodus that he would meet them there. That he would respond to them there. Several times it mentions that. Um, I had it in my notes, and I will find it eventually. But Exodus, I think it was in 29 somewhere. So you got to read the whole book of Exodus to find that verse I was going to reference to. 29 verse 43, God promises there at the altar he would meet his people when they needed him. And they offered the burnt offerings, the main offering that the Bible describes in the Old Testament. An offering that was fully and totally consumed. In other words, lots of different offerings. They were ways that they could worship God. They atoned for sin. They expressed their hearts. But the burnt offering was the one offering that was totally burnt up. Nothing was left to give to the priest. It was a way of saying, God, I give you everything. It was symbolic of saying, this is my life. My life is totally yours. It belongs to you. Morning and evening, they do this. The first thing they do is that we must build the altar We've got to get back to the thing that we were meant to do. We've got to get back to the thing that we neglected before and led to our ruin. We neglected the worship of God and we got destroyed. And again, the enemy will do everything he can in your life to distract you, to discourage you from worship. Why? Because he knows, listen, he knows you were wired for worship. You were meant for worship. And I know many of you heard, have heard this before, but it's a truth that we have to hear over and over. The reality is it's not that you're going to worship God or worship nothing. You will worship something because that's what you were meant to do. Your life, whether you realize it or not or you want to deny it or not, inevitably you will make something the ultimate thing in your life. You will live for that thing. You will worship that thing. You think that thing, that person will give you meaning. And listen, I just want to tell you, if it's any other thing other than God, that thing will ultimately destroy you. If you worship or make any other created thing, even a good thing, if it becomes an ultimate thing, it will destroy you. It will leave you in ruin and rubble, just like literally Israel was at that point. But when you worship the one true and living God, when you behold him, you become like him. There's life. You're living out the thing that you were meant to do. And so I wonder tonight, what about you? When your life's in ruins, when fear is threatening, what do you do? Where do you run? What's the first thing that you do when financial trouble hits, when relational trouble hits, when personal inner turmoil hits? Do you run to other people? Do you, do you try to build some kind of defense system or do you get back to that place and make sure that you are seeking God first and foremost? Is the first thing you do actually just to stop and to worship? 
regardless of how you feel or what you do. We see this over and over throughout scripture. Now, worship is many things. We know them. But let's just use it in the time of just worship as the most you know, obvious thing or the, the main thing it's describing is just singing and praying and praising and connecting God. See, Satan knows this. The, the world wants to think that, ah, see, this isn't a binary thing. No, this is very binary. It's either this or it's that. It's either one or the other. And I wonder tonight, what's your first response? What's the thing that you do? What do you want run to or who do you run to? Is worship the first priority of your life? It was for Israel. They said, we got to build this altar because for them, that was the way they could worship. That was the way they could actually come and approach and connect with God. Now, we'll talk a little bit later as we apply this to our life. We have such a, 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 a greater opportunity and with that, a, a greater responsibility. And actually, we have a lot less excuses than they did. You know, we might think, oh, it's a lot harder to worship. Yeah, you know, and so for us, it's that much easier. So we have even less excuse than they did. So that's the, re the restoration of the altar. Then it goes on to say in verse six, after that, they had begun to offer sacrifice. They, they, they keep the feast of booze or tabernacles. They're doing everything that the word describes. They are, listen, they are trying to live a life of obedience. But it says in verse six, from the seventh month, they began to offer the burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. Again, they made this their priority. When Cyrus, he wanted the temple built first. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. He had his motives. His motives were, you know, to make a name for himself. It was about power and everything else. So, but they say, no, I know Cyrus, you told us to build the temple first, but we're going to honor God and do this thing first. But the foundation of the temple was not yet laid. And then we go on and read about the second half of this chapter that it does get laid. But how? So the people, verse six and verse seven, they're beginning to freely give. Their hearts were touched. They began to worship. They began to offer sacrifice. They began to consecrate and reconnect with God. And what happened? The overflow of their heart was generosity. They realized all that God had done. And generously, they, they began to give money. Money that would actually be used to buy the timber from, from Lebanon. It says to buy and hire the, the stone masons who would cut the new blocks of the temple that would be erected. All because the people's hearts were ignited. And they began to respond. I love what it says here. It says, after that, pick up with me in verse 8. It says, now in the second year, that is in, in their coming of the house of God. Now a year has passed. In the second month, the second month being the month after Passover, all the festivities of Passover. In the second month, and one thing that I want us to take note of is the rebuilding of the temple follows the exact pattern of the building of the first temple. When you look at the, the events that took place, when you look at when it happened, it's the exact same month, the exact same time, the exact same things that we read about in the book of Chronicles when Solomon erected his temple. Same month, the month after Passover. The second month, Zerubbabel, who was the political leader, a descendant of King David, and Jeshua or Joshua, the high priest, the religious leader. I love what it says here, and we'll come back to this. They made a beginning. They made a beginning. Just a simple statement, but they started somewhere. A huge temple that needed to be built, a lot that had to be done. And the Bible just says here in the, in the English Standard Version, they made a beginning, they, they made a start. And for some of you, that's going to be a word for you tonight. Where do I begin? You, you just make a step, you make a beginning. Together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. And it goes on to say, as I read a moment ago, they appoint Levites and people 20 years up and over to supervise this work. Those who had skills, those who purchased, those who oversaw, those who actually did the labor. 
they resumed the building of God's house. Every man doing their job, every man acting as one, everyone full of faith, obedience, really worshiping God, not only with singing, but really their whole life as they come in this act of love and sacrifice to God. Finally, the day comes when they dedicate the foundation. The whole thing isn't done, but even at the dedication of the foundation, verse 10, we read this. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward. They're dressed. They've been washed. They're prepared. They came forward with trumpets. And the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord. Why? Because this is what David instructed them to do. David, the great worship leader of Israel. Oh, how we love to worship God. He appointed so many worship people who played instruments, who sang. And it says, and the people all joined in, verse 11, and they sang responsively, meaning one person sang, another group echoed back, and there was this great harmony taking place of all the people worshiping God. It says they were praising and giving thanks to the Lord. They sang the exact same song that was sung by the people when the first temple was built and dedicated to God. They sang the song, and it shows up many times in the history of Israel. In fact, we're going to sing it at the end of this sermon. We're going to sing a, a version of this. For he is good. God is good. His steadfast love. Some of you know what that word in the Hebrew is, steadfast love. It's his, that word chesed. The New uh, Testament word of the equivalent is the word agape. You're like, oh, I know that one. That unconditional, faithful, covenant love of God. Chesed. You want to practice that word? Chesed. You learned a new Hebrew word tonight. It's one of my favorite words when you study it. It's the steadfast love, the loving kindness, the loyal, covenant, faithful love of God. And listen, when they sing it this time, I think they sang it, I think in some ways, maybe even better than when they sang it the first time. They sang it the first time at the height of everything going well. Like, life was so good. I mean, Solomon's in charge. He's the most powerful person at that time. Israel is like at the peak. And so they sang, and they sang from a place of great joy. Oh, my goodness. Wow, wow. But there's got to be something, I think, at this point as they sing, and we see even by their emotions in a moment, because they're singing about the covenant, faithful love of God, that God still loves them after all that they had done, that they had rejected him. They had every reason to be cast off, to really have no hope, and yet God reaches out and saves them. So could you imagine them singing, standing on the very place of rubble because of the sins of their forefathers and really their own sins, and yet God is still faithful. God is still good. And so they're singing responsibly. They're singing from a heart who, who, who is just overwhelmed with the goodness and grace of God. When they realize what they deserve, and yet they've received mercy, they've received grace, they're singing. And oh, I think it's a remnant. It was a small group. It, it, and in one hand, you know, if you, if you were to look, you know, like you were a fly on the wall at both events, I bet you uh, at Solomon's temple, it was bigger. It was grander. There was far more people singing. Solomon's temple is one of the greatest wonders of the ancient world. And here's just a, a simple foundation of a temple that is much humbler than the first one. And yet I can't help but think the hearts of those who were worshiping, there was something even purer. I don't know. Because they understood a, a level of the character of God that even that other generation did, and it's that grace and mercy and forgiveness of God. They sang, you know, with their whole heart, I believe they sang, as it were, it was a prophetic song full of hope. 
It was a, a song declaring and believing that God is good, that God is keeping his word. And songs that we do sing, I don't know if you ever think about this, they should be, and at times, songs of prophetic hope. This is what you've done. This is who you are. Jeremiah 33, 11, it's in your notes. It says this, the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, and the voices of those who bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord, saying, listen, give thanks to the Lord Almighty. For the Lord is good. His love endures forever. God declares, for I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were before, says the Lord. They were singing in in response. They were singing in fulfillment of that prophetic declaration from the mouth of Jeremiah speaking on behalf of God. They were singing, I believe, a prophetic thing. This is what God promised. This is who God is. And just as they did that thousands of years ago, listen, every time we worship, it's not just simply singing, do, 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 passing the time to the Bible study. There's so much more going on. And if our hearts are full of faith and we sing, there's something prophetic about it when we sing the truths and the doctrines of who God is and what he's promised to do. Listen, this was the beginning, the beginning of the, the temple that will inevitably be built. But this is the beginning and their hearts are just overflowing and with gratitude and thankfulness to God. They're getting back to that purpose, pursuing God. I want to make some final points of application. As I was thinking about this, there's an altar, and we don't go to a physical altar. We don't go to a temple. We know that in the New Testament, we are the temple that the Holy Spirit dwells in. So there's some things that apply and some things don't, but I think there's some incredible application to our own lives. Though we don't need a physical altar, there, I think, still needs to be an altar as it is in our own lives of daily coming before the Lord. The rhythms of even morning and evening of making sure we come before the Lord, of, of taking care of the temple of our, of our lives that is, in fact, the place where the Holy Spirit dwells. How are we going to keep ourselves? Listen, how are you going to keep yourself Maybe things are going really good right now. You think, I don't want to end up in rubble. I don't want to end up in ruin. You don't have to. It's not inevitable. In fact, if, if you keep the main thing the main thing, you're going to avoid these things. But maybe you find yourself in the rubble. How do you get out? What are some practical lessons in, that we see here? Number one, we need to see this real worship. Real worship is the priority of life. It has to be the priority of your life. When I say worship, I mean pursuing and seeking after the presence of God. Yeah, that means you could be a lawyer, you could be a teacher, you could be a doctor. It doesn't mean, oh, I got to be a pastor, missionary, that's what I do my whole time. No, whatever it is you're doing, ultimately, it's about God and his presence. It's about a life of worship, of full and total consecration to him. I told you the burnt offering, the main offering, it really does. Every time that, that offering was given, it was representing a person or a group of people. It spoke of complete and total devotion. That's not a, a small part of your life. Listen, that's Romans 12, 1, that we are called to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. That's what God wants. He wants your mind. He wants your heart. He wants everything. And he'll never be satisfied with half. He'll never be satisfied with three quarters. He'll never be satisfied with even 99.9% of your life. He wants it all. And let me tell you something. You'll never be satisfied if you only give him 99%. You'll always have this nagging feeling that something's not right. You'll, you'll always be tiptoeing on the verge of rubble and ruin. It's every day we come and say, Lord, 
worshiping you, meaning my life, my mind, my heart, my thoughts. It's yours. I want to love you, God, with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And whether that's you're a, you're a scientist and you're, you're trying to find the cure for cancer, but you're praying every day and saying, Lord, my life belongs to you, and that's an act of worship. Whether you're an accountant and you're doing taxes, whether you're a security, whatever it might be, you're doing it as worship. It's the priority of your life. Number two, real worship is always sacrificial. We see this, they were offering sacrifices, and it's a point that I think many of us know, but throughout the Old Testament, and even the New, we think, oh, that's just in the Old Testament. No, the whole idea of real worship, it's going to cost you something. Real worship involves, listen, words that we don't like, commitment and consistency. (laughs) There should be a constancy in your life. And sometimes, I'm going to be honest, it's going to be real easy. Like, you can't wait to get to church. You're just like, whoo, I'm going to worship. It's just like, wow. Oh, man, I can't wait to hear the team. I'm just like so excited. I'm going to lift my hands. And it's like, you can't wait to get here. I love those times. And there's other times you're like, I do not want to go to church on Wednesday night. I've got so many things. That person's going to be there. They bug me. And I don't like this. And I don't know. And you're just like, oh, and, the, and everything else. And you're like, and the next morning, you're like, I'm just going to sleep in. And, and I, I watch that on TV. And I can't do that. And sometimes it's really hard. Real worship involves sacrifice. David said the expression I think we all know, we've heard, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. There are times when worshiping the Lord will be easy. It'll just be like, this is the most natural thing in the world. It's just like, yes. And there's going to be other times it's going to be the hardest thing that you do. And you need the Spirit of God to give you the, his power to, to let you follow what the Spirit wants, not what the flesh wants. A couple of weeks back, uh, Jimmy, you know, leading worship here, was at our house sharing with a group of folks. We have a house group. And he was talking about worship. And it was really great because Jimmy's probably one of the most passionate, excited people I know about worship. Like, he just is, like, ready to worship 24-7. He's just, he's wired that way. He's gifted that way. That's just who he is. And it was great when he was talking, though. He did share, because somebody asked the question, well, what if you don't feel like worshiping? And, and you, I think the person was expecting a response. Well, what's the matter with you? We always feel like worship. But he was honest. Like, yeah, sometimes I don't feel like it. And we don't always feel like it. I don't always feel like reading the Bible. I don't always feel like praying. There's times that I do and I can't wait, but there's times I don't. But you do it anyway. And God always meets us. He always meets me. He'll meet you. Worship will cost you something at times. It'll cost you financially maybe as you, as you listen and obey and you generously give to something God wants you to do. It's going to cost you time, all kinds of things. But listen, I'll tell you this, you can never outgive God. Whatever you think it's costing you, you're going to get back so much more. And many of you know that. You think, oh my goodness, I don't know. I gave up my Wednesday night and then you leave. Like, oh my gosh, it was the best night I could have possibly had. Next thing this is real worship is not only sacrificial, real worship is emotional. I don't mean it's purely emotionalism, but at some point, real worship in your life involves your emotions. And if it doesn't ever involve your emotions, I want to say you're doing it wrong. What happens? It says they sang responsibly. He is good. He is good. His love endures forever. They see the temple. And what happens? There's, there's a mix. There's, on one hand, as they think about the salvation of God, they think about all that God has done. It says they literally, what do they do? They're shouting. They're singing, and then they're not just going, he is good. He is good. And his love endures. You know, he is good. I think they were, they were shouting. He is good. You know, when we sing the king of my heart, I don't know about you, but I can never sing that song without just like raising my hands and wanting to shout. Like, he is good. He is good. It says literally, it says they were shouting. 
Lord, we love you. Thank you. There was great shouts of joy. There was deep emotion as one. It wasn't just a few people here and there. Like the whole crowd was just like, man. Some of you will gladly cheer at a Charger game, or most of you now will boo at a Charger game like myself, but that's a whole other story. But you'll shout and get really excited at all kinds of things, but you get to church, you're like, that's weird, I don't know. It's like, Listen, I'm not saying we get like that all the time, but there should be times, man, where you're just overwhelmed. But in the midst of that, something weird has happened. There's a group that's crying. There's another group who had seen the first temple, and it says they're weeping. And I think they're weeping because they realized the sin that brought them to that point. Some speculate, oh, they're weeping because the new temple wasn't as glorious as that one. And maybe that's true. But I also think they're weeping because of the effects of sin. Oh, they're honoring God. They're worshiping God. But there's a grieving that is taking place in their life. And I want to say to you tonight, there's times in worship that it's like that. There's times when you're really worshiping and connecting with God that you do lament over your sin. There's times when you're so full of gratitude, but you know your own heart and your own life, and you're just like, oh my goodness, and you're kind of broken, as it were. I'm not saying you're paralyzed and you live there, but there's these times when you feel deeply. And I want to say this, if you never allow yourself to weep over sin, your sin, the sins of others, and feel that, you'll never shout for joy over the salvation God brings. And some of you are wondering, well, I never feel like shouting because maybe you've never really felt the pain of sin. You've never really felt the, the hurt that you've caused God of your, because of your rejection. Because when you do that, I guarantee you, you'll feel the joy of your salvation. You'll remember what it's like to be saved. I wonder tonight if some of you remember what it was like when you gave your heart to the Lord, when you felt, man, he... He forgave you. That emptiness was filled. That loneliness was gone. That fear of death was forever removed. It sounds silly. People laugh at me when I tell the story, but I remember where I was when I got saved. I was eight years old. I was in a Sunday school class, and I, sadly, I backslid. You know, it wasn't like I was a perfect kid. I had a lot of problems, but I remember that's when God saved me. I knew at eight years old I was a sinner. Yes, I, I had beaten up my brother many times. I had gotten in fights. We always did, and I, and I always felt guilty about it. I remember stealing a piece of bubble gum from Thrifty's. I don't know if you guys remember Thrifty's, but I stole a piece of gum, and my mom made me go back into the manager. I'm so sorry. I was like crying and blubbering. And not only was I, but I felt like just, like I felt dirty. Like I knew it was wrong. It was like, even when I was stealing, I knew, like, I know it sounds silly, but I felt, even at eight years old, and I've, trust me, since I felt it many times, but the effect of my sin. And, and when a Sunday school teacher invited me to receive Jesus, I knew it. I knew I needed Jesus. I believed in Jesus. I'm thankful for a family that modeled and taught me Jesus. And I gave my life. And I remember afterwards coming after Sunday school and telling my mom, Mom, I gave my life to Jesus. I prayed this prayer. And I didn't know the word for joy. But I literally was like eight years old. I was like almost crying. I was like, all I kept saying to my mom, Mom, I'm so happy. I'm so happy. I'm so happy. And I think in my life, I don't think I've ever felt so happy as I did as an eight-year-old in that moment when God saved me. And so I say to some of you parents who have, you know, kids that might be eight years old, you're like, ah, oh, they're too young. They don't know. No, trust me. I know. Like when people are like, when were you saved? Like that's when God got a hold of my life. That's when I know. And maybe for some of you, you're like in your 50s and that's, that's the moment. And maybe for some of you, it's not yet. But trust me, there's coming a day for some of you, not yet. That God, he loves you. He wants to do that. That your heart would so be touched by God that it, you can't help it at times. Just say, Jesus, I love you. Real worship, when you read the book of Psalms, involves raising your hands, it involves bowing your knees, it involves sometimes quiet solitude. Be still and know that I am God. And other times, it's just great. Shouts, lift up a shout of praise, clap your hands, all you people. It's like, whoa! 
real worship because it involves your whole life. Real worship isn't just doing a thing. It's just who you are. It's what you're meant to do. And God made you a person who's got a body, who's got mind, will, and emotions, who's got a spirit. And so all of those things, when they really connect with God, they should be engaged. And I wonder tonight if, you know, an outside person came and watched Maranatha, what would they see? Would they see people who were like, <laughs> would they see people and go, they may not get it, but they're like, I don't know, but those people, I think they're doing what, they're, what, the, what we're meant to do. Would they see in your life when you're worshiping God and how you live your life? Would they see, you know, again, that analogy like, like that dog who like that lab, like, man, that thing's doing the thing it's meant to do. Would they look at your life and go, man, I, I don't fully understand it, but I don't know. I want that. I, I, it's like, I'm meant for that. I need that. that. That makes sense. Or would they see bored, disinterested, distracted? Man, in worship, there really is a glimmer of a man or woman fully alive doing the thing that God made us to do. I don't know about you, but that resonates. It stirs my heart. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, I can safely say on the authority of all that is revealed in the word of God that any man or woman on this earth who was bored and turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. That's what heaven's all about, guys. Last thing, and I'll end this and get us ready to respond in worship, is real worship is relational. And I'll, I'll take a segue from here in the Old Testament and just point us to Jesus because they had to build a physical altar. We don't have to do that because the ultimate altar was a cross that was suspended there on Golgotha as it held the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus. And so we don't offer bulls and goats and doves and anything like that. No, Jesus paid the price once and for all. For them, they were never quite certain, do I get in or do I not get in? No, listen, the veil was torn in two. And because of Jesus, we have access. We actually can have and experience the presence of God. And because the veil has been torn, here's the thing I want to say to us tonight. I want to encourage you and I want to challenge you. Because the veil's been torn, you can enter in. Here's the thing. You get as much of God as you want. You get as much of God as you want. He wants all. He sends the invitation. All who are thirsty, come and drink. To the spirit and the bride, the book of Revelation ends. To the spirit and the bride, God says, come. The veil is open. Experience the goodness of my presence. In the midst of fear, surrounded by rubble, maybe in your life, you're not, what do I do? How do I rebuild? You begin with worship. How do I get back? The way back begins, like it always begins, back in the heart of worship. And when you begin to worship, you'll be set free. When you begin to worship, you'll receive hope. Maybe your circumstances won't change. The city wasn't rebuilt overnight. The temple wasn't erected in, in a day but they made a beginning. And for some of you tonight, you need to make a beginning. You need to make a start. And that first start says, Lord, I consecrate, I surrender my life afresh and anew to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your presence. Lord, you're here. And God, more than we want to be restored, you want to restore us. You really do. And restoration doesn't come from us trying harder, being more religious. No, it comes when we begin to just do the thing we were made to do, and that's to worship you. So God, convict us of our idolatry, of our laziness, of our distractedness. And God, put a burning passion in our hearts for you that we would see in you and in your face. That's what David said. One thing have I desired, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of God, that I may gaze upon the beauty, literally the face of God. He says, I may dwell upon the penim, the face of God. Lord, may that be the cry of our heart,
and all that we do to dwell and to gaze upon your beauty, to gaze upon your face. So Lord, cause us to weep. And then God, cause us to shout great shouts of joy for who you are and all that you've done. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, we're going to sing and we're going to respond. And man, you better sing. <laughs> you better shout. You better worship the Lord. And then we're going to take communion. And for some of you tonight, there's a beginning that needs to be made. And, and as we're singing tonight, you have the opportunity to do that. But get right with the Lord. Remember him. Remember that the sacrifice has been paid. And because of that, you have access. Let's sing. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.